0: So let's move on with the podcast. This is the NP Business Matters podcast, episode number 33 on healthcare fraud and nurse practitioners. Hello and welcome to the NP Business Matters podcast. I'm your host, Barbara C. Phillips, founder of Nurse Practitioner Business Owner and the Clinician Business Institute. And since 2007, we've been providing education, resources, and support about the business of being a nurse practitioner. To learn more, you can visit npbusiness.com and clinicianbusinessinstitute.com. Today, I'm talking about healthcare fraud and nurse practitioners. Now, this is a topic, as you'll hear, came up in one of the NPBO member Uh, office hours that we do. Unfortunately, it's also one that I see other nurse practitioners falling prey to unintentionally, but I see posts about it in Facebook and, and some other groups and just some of the emails that I'm getting. And I think we all know that if we say Oh, I didn't know that. It will not protect us. So let's talk about it and some of the ways that you can protect yourself. Now, this is a huge topic. And of course, I'm just giving you an overview here, but I will have links to different resources so that you can explore this topic more. But it is something that we cannot ignore. So let's get started. So back in December 2019, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Office of the Inspector General, and law enforcement agencies announced that they were able to take down 35 individuals for participation in healthcare fraud schemes involving $2.1 billion in losses. That press release is something that we've almost come to expect. We see it in newsletters and in emails that we receive from Medscape and from Medicare and things like that. But really, shouldn't we be doing better? Now in the above example, the OIG was targeting genetic testing fraud schemes, and these things are taking place nationwide. Now, what happens with these genetic testing uh, schemes is that there's usually a recruiter, also known to the OIG as a marketer, and they get providers to sign off on genetic tests so that the test can be processed by the lab. The recruiter turns around and pays the provider a kickback. The lab, well, it bills Medicare, and some of these reimbursements are in the thousands. And the lab, once it is reimbursed, it shares the proceeds with the recruiter. Chances are you've already seen the advertisements that are very common for these types of schemes, the advertisements that are direct to consumers about genetic testing. And it might say something like free cancer screening tests or hereditary cancer screening pharmacogenetics, uh, DNA testing screen, dementia testing, and Parkinson's screening. Consumers are often told that these tests are free, no cost to them, and that they don't even need a physician's order, simply make an appointment. Well, they're making an appointment on a telemedicine platform that is going to arrange for testing. And guess who's on the other side of that platform? You've got it. It's often a nurse practitioner or physician that are giving the okay for the test. That particular provider may or may not be suspicious about the company and the test that are being done. Of course, these tests definitely have legitimate uses for them in inappropriate situations. However, they're just not wide-scale testing that is appropriate, at least not at this time and place. So in the past week or so, the last couple of weeks, uh, by the time this comes out, during one of our NPBO office calls, and I I do those office calls every couple of weeks with our members, they're just short one-to-one calls where we can get down to a topic and And find a solution for them. Anyway, I was speaking with a nurse practitioner, and she's not a newbie. She's a seasoned nurse practitioner, and she was approached about this. The company involved had apparently been sending MAs out to the home of patients to obtain the swabs for these tests. And they're now asking the nurse practitioner to sign off on the orders and do some documentation. Of course, they've tried to reassure her with a physician being involved in that sort of thing but fortunately this nurse practitioner's early warning system went off and we all know what that is that's our gut because anybody who's been in nursing for any length of time we know that we better listen to our gut Anyway, hers was in fine working order, and she questioned the medical indications, who was seeing the patients, who was authorizing these tests. And fortunately, she didn't sign off anything. Another red flag for hers, they kept saying that they needed to have her NPI number on these things, and that just didn't sit right with her. So by the time that we hung up the, the call together, she had made the decision or had confirmed her already made decision that she was going to sever her relationship with the company. So after talking with this NPs, I think around May 18th, I had this email coming from Medscape announcing there's blood tests coming on the market that claims to be able to detect up to 50 Different cancers from a single blood draw. So it's still kind of beta, if you will, and it's initially only going to be available to the Providence healthcare system that's on the West Coast in California, Oregon, and Washington. However, as I was reading this and just talking with this other nurse practitioner, I just thought, oh my God, even this is going to be ripe for potential fraudsters to uh, get involved. So how do providers get involved with these schemes? I mean, what is attracting nurse practitioners, physicians, and PAs to get involved in these kinds of things? Well, you know, some of us may be tired. Maybe we're a little burned out, but we still need to make an income. Uh, Maybe we're looking for work that we can do from home that doesn't have a whole lot of stress. And I'm sure just in this past year with the pandemic, a lot of people were looking at how they can still work for home. There were practices that closed down and services that uh, temporarily stopped um, providing services. So people were looking for work. And, you know, there are those, I'm sure, since we are all humans, we're all part of the the race of people um, that there are some who are only looking at the potential financial gains. I mean, that's just the reality of it. We may be healthcare providers, but healthcare providers come in all shapes and sizes, and also with all kinds of ethics or lack thereof. So while Medicare commonly seems to be the target, they're they're definitely not alone. Third party payers are often targeted as well. And frankly, anyone who can pay, who is willing to pay and can pay the cash, they're also targeted. And, you know, this type of fraud is not limited to genetic and screening tests. Healthcare fraud comes in many, many forms. And we often see it when it comes down to documentation, coding, and billing, And so I've gathered a few examples here today. Some you may be familiar with, some you may not be familiar with. And as I looked more into this, I even heard of some that I had never heard of before and would never have thought of. So anyway, here's some examples. A real common one is we might see upcoding of charts um, and not having the appropriate documentation that follows uh, the level of service. Now, I also want to say while we're talking about upcoding, downcoding is also considered a form of fraud. So we have to be careful. Um, Sometimes people have documented and billed for services that were never provided. There's been cases of people providing unnecessary treatments such as injections so that they can charge for them. But in that same vein, there is also those that will order injections, order medications that people don't get. And so for examples... Um, medications such as opiates or steroids or other drugs that have street value, they can be ordered and obtained, not given to the patient, but then sold off to dealers and others who will pay for them and probably distribute them themselves. Sometimes we're giving out services or, or performing services that are not covered. And we bill for them, but we bill for them in a way in which they appear to be a covered service. So actually, we're falsifying records. We can submit false claims and other falsifications like the one that I just mentioned, and that that can be in many forms. And when I was thinking about this, I thought about particularly with nurse practitioners. So sometimes what will happen is the nurse practitioner provides the service, but it is billed out under the physician, even though it wasn't a true incident too. And it's all in the name of that additional 15% reimbursement. But then let's think about the incident too. Could that be fraud as well? Physician's not there. The nurse practitioner's name is not on the claim. Yes, there is a modifier to indicate that this was incident two, but still it it can become an issue. There's a lot of reasons I immensely dislike incident two, and that's just one of them. So what about allowing providers to perform services when they haven't been yet credentialed by that third party? and then billing it out as if the provider who is credentialed is providing the service. This is a a particular issue that I blame insurance agencies for. When we want to bring on somebody um, to our practices, we have to go through a three to six month waiting period for credentialing. Well, if you think about it, particularly in today's world, this is ridiculous. Chances are they've been working for somebody else. Um, They've already been credentialed with that same company just under another provider. In it, there's no way it should take the time that it takes. We also have the technology so that these things can be verified very quickly. So, that type of a situation I really think falls back to the insurance companies because who, uh, uh, who can afford to bring on another provider paying them a salary and then not having them generate revenue? It's, it's a huge problem. There have been incidences where staff has been allowed to perform services outside of their scope and licensure. And then again, the practice owner or someone in the practice is billing it to another provider who is authorized to do those procedures. And I've said this one before many times, but waiving deductibles and copayments is also considered fraud. I'm not talking about the hardship. Um, issues that can come up and maybe we're waiving a copay or deductible for a short period of time and we have the documentation for that. But just generally waiving copays and um, deductibles is considered fraud. Incorrect reporting of a diagnosis or procedure is also fraudulent Overutilization of services. And, you know, we can see that there are some companies that will make perhaps daily visits to somebody's home when there's no medical indication for it. And I remember early on in my primary care practice, I would have some patients who would come in to see me and they would schedule these appointments sometimes every two weeks, every month. And yet, there really wasn't a need for it. It seemed like it was more of a social call. And in that case, it was, okay, let's find them some other resources so that they don't need to come in and see us because that can be a problem, definitely. If you're paying for or receiving payments for referrals, and that's going to come into the um, the kickback, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more. Altering records is a problem. I can recall several years ago of a case of a nurse practitioner in New England who had billed Medicare for a lot of procedures, and they were all one particular specialty procedure. And that was fine. She was actually performing these procedures, however... They audited her charts because they were reimbursing her so much, and her documentation was lacking. And as they requested more and more records, they could tell that she was trying to add in information or alter some of the additional records. And eventually she was fined, and I believe she actually had to do some time in custody uh, because of this. I also read about another nurse practitioner who pleaded guilty to receiving kickbacks. And apparently this particular nurse practitioner was authorizing behavioral health services for Medicaid patients, but she never evaluated the patients. And I guess the kicker was that when she was recorded, videotaped, actually accepting a cashier's check in exchange for her signature. So that uh, wasn't a smart move. Now, this is one I had not heard of before. And when I was speaking with Kathy Lloyd, who is a certified professional biller, and she owns TriCity Physician that does credentialing and billing, Kathy is also a certified fraud examiner. And so I asked her if she had any stories that she wanted to share with me. And she related a story of a biller who resubmitted claims that had already been paid. And her um, reasoning to the insurance company for that was that the address was incorrect. Now, obviously, this is back in the day when people were getting checks to their offices. So this biller... Resubmitted the claims with a new correct address, and that address happened to be her own. And so the money was actually sent to her home. There's a couple of issues here. One is if the money had already been paid, and I'm assuming it's all checks, and the checks have cleared the bank, why did the insurance company send that money out again? So, but they did. And apparently, It was in an amount um, of multiple six figures over time. And apparently what was also really fascinating to me, this is not an isolated case. It's like, do people get together and talk about the different schemes that they're going to do? I don't know, but it's something I had never heard of. And in that same vein, another biller told me many, many years ago stories about billers who upcoded the claims that they were submitting. So they were upcoding the claims, which then the provider received additional reimbursement, but it also allowed that biller to receive additional monies because she was being paid on a higher collected amount. What's a real problem here is that any claims that go out, that are in our name, submitted on our behalf, that still means that our name is attached to those false claims. And some other things that have come up, a physician was billing out um, $681 million in a substance abuse treatment fraud scheme. And so he was caught. And another case, and this one involved... Uh, nurse practitioners and, and PAs as well, working for a telemedicine company were ordering DMA supplies that were unneeded. And DMA is a huge issue when it comes to fraud, particularly for Medicare. One of the documented cases involved a PA who wrote over 7,600 prescriptions for some orthotic braces that were not needed. And in this case, it wasn't only the providers that were held responsible for their actions, but also the telemedicine company was charged for their role in the kickbacks as well. So the point is that people are and can be creative in what they're doing. And like I said earlier, I've always been amazed at the links and the creativity and the schemes that people come up with in order to achieve their goals for the for the illegal part of this, and and I often wonder what if we just put all of that energy into doing good in the world. But anyway, that's off topic. So let's talk about the Stark Law and anti kickback, and just what does that mean? There's a lot of confusion about that, and so this is from a handout coming from, I believe it's the OIG, and I'll have a link for it in the um, in the blog post. But anti-kickback prohibits offering, paying, soliciting or receiving anything of value to induce or reward referrals or generate federal healthcare care program business. It's referrals from anybody, so it's not specifically a physician. and it can be for any items or services. And what's different about this one here is when it comes to intent, it has to be proven. It has to be knowing and willingly. Of course, there's all kinds of fines, potential imprisonment for both criminal and civil or administrative. So this particular one, anti-kickback, it includes all federal health care plans, can that happen for commercial insurances? I'm sure that that'll come up as well. But in terms of what the OIG is putting out, that's that's what this is. Now, for the Stark Law. The Stark Law is directly for physicians. And it prohibits a physician from referring Medicare patients for designated health care services to an entity in which the physician or An immediate family member has a financial relationship. And there are some exceptions. So with the Stark Law, you're looking specifically at Medicare and Medicaid, and it's physician-centric, it's physician-driven. So nurse practitioners are not included in Stark Law. But if we look at this, the anti-kickback in in my non-lawyer mind is essentially the same type of a thing. It's just a broader application. So when I was looking at this anti-kickback, one of the questions that I had, and I posed this to a nurse practitioner attorney that we all know and love, and I asked her, when we look at kickback, how does this apply to nurse practitioners that are involved in multi-level marketing companies, network marketing companies, sharing products with their patients in their practice. And, and you know, that whole idea of the downline and that sort of thing. And for that matter, for any supplements that w- people are offering in their practices. And there's no case law on this. And it wasn't necessarily involving a federal health care Program. So it would, we don't really know at this point whether it would be considered kickback, but it um, certainly has the potential for doing that. So I throw that out there for those of you that may be involved in multi level marketing companies um, and even potentially have healthcare products in your practices to really look at. What you're doing. Now, one of the things that often comes up as well when we start thinking about this, or at least I thought about it early on, was how do I make referrals? How do I make referrals, particularly if somebody is also in my practice? In my primary care practice, in addition to me as the nurse practitioner, there was also an acupuncturist who was a separate business, who was just basically renting space from the practice. And so when I would refer people for acupuncture, what I did was that I let them know that somebody is in the office here that they could use for their convenience, or here's a list of a couple of other acupuncturists that they can see, so that they had the choice. I wasn't saying you must go to this person in my office, which might Make it look like I was getting more than just the rent from that particular provider. So that's something to consider if you have other providers in your office or if you're doing these supplements that you or any other medication that you might have there for the convenience of your patients. So, what do you do if you do spot fraud? How do you handle that? Well, if you yourself have inadvertently participated in fraud. You might want to fess up to that, and it's not that hard. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. The Office of the Inspector General also has a hotline for potential fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement, and on that website, which I will have linked in the show notes. But you know, if you go to OIG.hhs.gov and look for fraud, you'll certainly find that. But I will have those links. And again, um, this particular site also has information talking about False Claims Act. They also talk about the Medicare Fraud Control Units and the Medicaid, or excuse me, the Medicaid Fraud Control Units and the Medicare Fraud Strike Force. So they have two different names. Now, third-party payers often have an anonymous line that you can call and leave information on. And so this is something that happened to me. I found myself late one night trying to get my charts done um, because I was seeing like 40 patients. It was insane. And the office manager slash mother of the physician came up to me and handed me a bunch of CMS 1500 forms, also known as HICFA forms. Um, those were when all the billing was done, usually by paper, and those were sent in. And they were patients that had been on my schedule that day. They were already coded as a 99214. She wanted me to sign those forms, which I'd never signed a CMS 1500 in my life. And I don't know that every anybody ever did. And I started looking through the forms. They were people who had only come in to pick up a prescription or get a urine test done because they needed one for either a drug UA or a UTI or whatever, or people that I saw very fast and furious, and they were not 214 visits. I refused to sign those forms, and she said, that's fine, doctor will sign them, and walked away. But it frightened me because what was happening to the charts and the coding that was being done, even though I might put a 213 or something else on the chart, what was she actually putting on the chart and having the biller put on the chart? And so the following day, I did pick up the phone and I left an anonymous tip on the largest insurance companies that we were working with because I, quite frankly, I was frightened uh, for my own license and my own involvement in this. And don't worry, I gave notice very quickly for that particular job. So how can nurse practitioners and other providers protect themselves, protect their practices and I think the first thing is is get yourself educated, keep up to date on the coding changes, as well as the appropriate use, um, and making sure that you have the appropriate documentation to justify the level of service. Now, if you are a member of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners (AANP), you can log in to the um, in, into the members area, and under the CE Center, there's often different continuing education on documentation and coding. So you can certainly do that. Another highly recommended is emuniversity.com. So that's E-M as in Evaluation and Management, university.com. Now this is a coding and documentation educational website run by a physician who happens to be a certified professional coder and he has excellent courses that are available and they cover most all specialties so if you're psych you can go in and and see what he's recommending there if you're doing internal medicine or if you're doing acute care if you're doing house calls you'll find it all there very inexpensive well worth the the price and i've actually taken many courses and have repeated the courses just to keep up So the second thing is, I think you need to understand kickback and Stark. Okay, so again, nurse practitioners are not named in Stark. It is specifically physicians, but it does pertain to us and certainly the whole idea of kickback and Stark. And of course, if you ever have any questions, you know, reach out to An attorney, reach out to somebody who understands these rules just to make sure that you are on the right side of the law here. It's it's important to understand the rules about billing for healthcare services. Oftentimes, what I see, and I've seen this in my own practice, and I see a lot of other nurse practitioners talk about it a patient will come in and they don't want to use their insurance, they just want to pay cash. Maybe it's something they don't want reported, maybe it's some kind of a condition or maybe a mental health issue, whatever it is, they would rather have you pay cash. But the issue here comes in is, do you have a contract with that payer? You need to understand what your contracts say because you may be out of compliance and you may be committing fraud unknowingly. So you want to be aware of the rules for the different insurance companies and also the rules for how often you can see people and under what circumstances. So make sure that you are up to date on that. If you are in your own practice, what kind of policies and procedures do you have regarding referrals? regarding documentation, coding and billing, etc. What does your mission and value statement say? What does your own practice code of ethics say? How are you communicating that both to your patients and to your staff? And does everybody follow through? Do you have the compliance that you need to have? And I'll talk a little bit more about compliance further down here. You might even consider doing your own audits or hiring somebody to do an independent audit, especially if you suspect a problem. So your, your charts can be audited. Your billing can be audited. You can even have audits to, are you following through with your compliance program? So you may want to do that just to make sure that things are, are good. Now, if you work for a larger organization, you may want to find out what they're doing in terms of compliance and perhaps even getting involved in that to make sure that you're educated, you're on the right side of the law here. And you know, if something feels out of whack, please trust your gut. As nurses, we've honed that skill and um, just trust it. If you're still not sure, reach out, find a trusted professional that you can discuss it with. Just like the conversation I recently had with the nurse practitioner that I started all of this with. She had already felt that this was fraud and just needed confirmation of it. So find a professional to talk with. Talk with your lawyer, as I said earlier. And if a colleague comes to you Please listen to them with open ears. In the situation that I mentioned earlier that I was in, I was told at one point that I was overreacting. And of course, I wasn't. And certainly the federal courts did not think that I was overreacting either. So, you know, take care of yourselves, take care of your colleagues. Do a check on your own ethics and those around you. Be aware if something sounds like it's too good to be true, because you know that saying, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. I would keep a very high level of suspicion if someone wants to use your license, your NPI number, your tax ID numbers. I mean, all of that is certainly public information. But if they're telling you that they're using it, why? And also, and this came up just this past week, actually, and you know we were doing a members call, and someone was saying that her employer was asking her over and over again for her passwords, and then they would change things. And this happened to be involving her credentialing. But uh, nobody should ever ask you for your password, and you should never share your passwords. And if somebody is, change them very quickly. You can, um, and I highly recommend using some sort of. Um, a password generator, password manager, because who can keep track of all the crazy passwords these days? And there's a variety of them out there. Uh, I use LastPass. That's the one that I like the most. But there's RoboForm. There's One Password. There's, like I said, there's a plethora of them. You might want to make sure that you are also periodically auditing your own EOB, explanation of benefits, or Electronic remittance advice. Take a look at what's being billed out, what's coming back. Um, What are the denial codes? What are the amounts that you're receiving? Are you receiving the amounts that you're actually contracted for? Or is that money disappearing somewhere. And in that same vein, monitor your financial records on a regular basis to make sure that that money that you expect that is coming in is coming in and that there's nothing else funny going on with your accounts. One thing that I've said for years and years and years and years is do not allow somebody to like your money more than you do. And take a look at your own healthcare business investments. Is there anything That could influence your behavior so that what you're looking at is not necessarily the patient's well being, but also how much money that you can make off of this particular transaction with your patient. So that's something you always need to be aware of. So these are just a few of the things that you can do in your practice. And again, if you don't have this compliance program in your practice, look into it. I will have in. The resources on the blog, a list of things where you can go to learn how to put together a a compliance program for your practice. The OIG has some information. Um, There's been, the AMA has published books on how to put together a compliance program. And also, for those of you that have the policy and procedure book that I'm often recommending, There's a whole section in there about putting together policies and procedures about compliance. So you may want to take a look at that as well. You know, fraud is such a big problem. It costs all of us, patients, providers, healthcare organization, and our government. I mean, right now, U.S. healthcare spending is up to $3.8 trillion per person. Or excuse me, no, three point eight trillion dollars per year, but eleven thousand five hundred and eighty-two dollars per person. Now we know that a majority of people don't seek out healthcare. That they don't. You know, you have healthy children, you have healthy adults. All it takes is one sixty thousand dollar open heart surgery, and and that number goes up. But that's fine. That's. That's a necessary expenditure. Maybe not at that amount, but it's a necessary expenditure. But it isn't necessary to have somebody write 7,600 prescriptions for unneeded orthotics and charge Medicare for that. It's also not necessary, and, and this has been a pet peeve of mine for years, that Medicare is paying a rental fee to DME companies for nebulizers, for somebody who may have asthma or COPD or, or any other thing. So they're, they're paying those monthly rentals. And when uh, I recall it being something like $24, $25 a month, well, you can buy one of those machines for, I don't know what the current price is, but certainly less than $100. So it, it doesn't need to have this recurring payment. But again, $3.8 $3.8 trillion per year. And that accounts for 17.7% for the gross domestic product in our country. And that's huge. Really, it needs to be reined in. And healthcare fraud is one place. Obviously, there's many, many more places. So I, I want to invite you to head on over to the blog. And I'd like to hear from you what do you What are you seeing? What are you experiencing? And what kinds of steps have you taken to protect yourself and your practice and your own license? So let me know over at the blog. So that's it for today. I want to thank you for taking time out to take a listen and to share this. And again, I really want to hear your thoughts and your experiences. And and you can. Leave that information over at npbusiness.com forward slash fraud. I'm going to make this very easy for you to find it. So thank you so much for taking your time to take a listen to this today, to think about it, and to really look at your own practice. It's going to take all of us to at least make a little bit of a dent in And perhaps we can't make a big dent, but you can make a dent in your practice and with your patients. So be sure to head on over to npbusiness.com forward slash fraud for today's episode so that you can leave your comments and access those resources and links that I talked about. And I want to thank you for sharing our podcast, commenting on the podcast, and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps other people find us. I'm Barbara C. Phillips, nurse practitioner and founder of Nurse Practitioner Business Owner, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the NP Business Matters podcast. Bye-bye now.